I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we're going to talk policy solutions to all the looming challenges that Bill and Scott brought up in our last episode, all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, I'm back with you after a bout with COVID. I feel great, mostly feel great. It, it kind of sucked having COVID. I won't lie about that, but I'm back. And I heard that while I was gone, you guys solved all the problems there are in trade, or at least you discussed all the problems. And today we're going to talk about some of the solutions. So Bill, I want, I want to kick off and ask you, what do we want to talk about here? We want to talk about the looming challenges in the global trading system and what some of these solutions are, correct? Yes. Last week we discussed the problems and then we punted the solutions. Right. It's shocking that the trade guys punted. And you, well, I'm also grateful that you waited, you punted until my return. So that, that's, that's right. Thing. And it was fourth and long. So we, so we, we really didn't have any options. Yeah. The analytics so, just weren't there. Right. But, well, plus it, it's your son who's the putter, right? But my son is, yes. My son is a retired college punter. Yes. And, uh, and many people that he competed against are now punting in the NFL. He is not. Oh, well, in any event. What we talked about last week were challenges of the trading system, which we discussed the conflation of national security with economics, the search for resilience and redundancy due to COVID and due to other supply chain crises. Climate, I introduced a new term that I learned, global collective action problems, of which climate is one. And so we talked about that and also about worker rights, human rights, other access to healthcare, and other problems that transcend borders that have become trading system problems. And we talked a little bit about uh, populism, which we have some experience with here in the United States, but it's not unique to the United States. We see it in other countries as well. And populists tend to be protectionists, and they in particular tend to be anti-immigrant and anti-migrant, and that then impacts also on, on the trading system. And we talked a little bit about what that means, about the search for de-risking in supply chains, fragmentation of the trading system, the breaking of it into parts and using, quoting a term from Ed Gresser, whom we've had on the trade guys in the past, trade clustering, which basically is, he sees, well, it's not just he, but WTO sees the world trading, uh, friends trading with friends and not trading so much with adversaries. So the WTO sort of looked at, it's a little squishy, but like-minded countries and not so like-minded countries, and found trade between like-minded countries increasing. So it would be friends and allies, basically, and trade across the line with adversaries like China or Russia, in our case, uh, decreasing. So there's some clustering going on. And I think where we ended up was concluding that, and I think Scott led the way on this, was that globalization was not going away, but it was changing form. And it was changing form in the direction of more politically based, I guess you could say, coalitions of like-minded parties. And there we stop. And so I'll pick up where we stopped with a couple of points, and then Scott will elaborate, do all the things that I forgot. <laughs> First of all, I think that 
that it's important to note that globalization doesn't go away easily. Uh, it doesn't go away easily because it's been enabled by enormous cost reductions in transportation and communication that allowed all this stuff to happen over the last 50 years. Can't just slip the switch. You, yes. Well, you can't uninvent containerization. You can't uninvent cell phones. You can't uninvent the digital economy. The tools are all there, and they're going to stay there. How they get used is the difference. And, you know, historically, we go through periods of two steps forward, one step back to misquote Lenin. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But the, the beyond word march tends to continue. Although we did, I did participate earlier in a WIDA seminar. Some of our listeners probably listened to the WIDA Washington International Trade Association seminar, which was sort of the U.S. trading system since the Tea Party. And what about it? And one of the dialogues we had was with Lori Wallach, who was an exponent, very much supporter of what the Biden administration is currently doing, and a, otherwise skeptical about past trade agreements, skeptical about bad, bad past trade policies. And we did get into an argument because I, I said that I thought that what she was doing was actually going to take us not forward, which is what she said, but take us backwards in the 50s and the 30s, where we had sort of every country for himself and trying to use its leverage for to gain a competitive advantage. And we saw how well that worked in the 30s. So I'm, I wasn't excited about her alternatives. There's only two times in history, I think, where globalization has actually gone backwards. One was after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, but the other one was more recent. And that was really between 1913 and 1970, because thanks to two world wars and the Depression, the level of trade in the world in 1913 was not surpassed until 1970. It's a very long time with a big, long dip. Ever since 70, it's been growing significantly, and it's a much more important part of our economy, both the United States economy uh, as a rules of global economy than it was uh, before. So we're at the point, I think, of, like I said, restructuring, not withering away. As to how to meet the challenges, I would suggest there are several. And I confess, as I did on this WIDA thing, that I'm an institutionalist. You know, we, the United States and others created the system we've got at Bretton Woods in 1944, and it was designed to, so that we wouldn't repeat the 30s and we wouldn't repeat the 40s. And it was designed to set up rules. They established not only the GATT, which started out to be something different and the Senate never approved the treaty. It ultimately became the WTO, but they also created the World Bank to deal with development and the International Monetary Fund to deal with money, currency. And so they set up a three-legged stool to try to basically impose some multilateral discipline on the world. And it's, I think it's worked pretty well. People disagree with that, but I think it's worked pretty well for 70 years. And right now it's beginning to crumble. And the United States is, I think, partly the cause of that, not the only cause. Some of our actions are, I think, justified. But we are contributing to its crumbling by not exercising any leadership and trying to fix it. So one solution is trying to patch up the crumbling foundations of multilateralism and get the WTO back to prime fighting condition, I guess, if you will. Fortunately, that's on the agenda for the WTO ministerial, I think, uh, coming up at the end of February. I think there's widespread skepticism that they'll accomplish very much. But it's on the agenda, which is an accomplishment. And I think at the very least, they will probably set up a work program to try to get some pieces of it done. There was a commitment in the previous ministerial in 2021 to address reform issues and particularly 
address reforming the dispute resolution system by 2024. And that produced the usual WTO argument over, does that mean by the minister, ministerial in 2024, which would be February, or does it mean by the end of 2024, which is the U.S. position? So I think it probably is going to end up being the end of 2024 uh, and not February, but they're on track to tackle the issue. The U.S., by all accounts, has exercised virtually no leadership in this area. They've brought down the appellate body uh, by refusing to agree to the appointment of new members. So that whole thing is gone. Uh, the United States has not proposed a solution. It's not given much of a hint as to what it wants to do. It's hoping for other people to come up with ideas. And there have been some, but the United States has not taken a firm position on them either. I think there's a reason for that, and in part, the U.S. experience in the WTO is that their support for anything is usually the kiss of death. Immediately, 24 developing countries will oppose it just because the U.S. Uh, supports it. So they might be wise to hang back, but what we're hearing now is somebody needs to lead, you know, and nobody's leading, and you need to put something on the table. You know, you're the one that got us into the mess, so you need to be more active in getting us out of the mess. So that's one big thing. I think while that's going on, you're going to see more plurilateralism, which really is a fancy term for coalitions of the willing. Plurilateralism? Plurilateralism, yes. And I've, I've been frustrated because Spellcheck refuses to recognize that as a word. Is that actually a word? Well, not according to Spellcheck, but it, it is used in, in these sort of dialogues. Spellcheck will accept unilateralism, bilateralism, trilateralism, and multilateralism. The trade walks made it up. Okay, so it's a made-up trade walk. Sure. It's yep. a made-up, yes, it's what us walks. You can refer to it as coalitions of the willing. It's people that want to do more getting together and agreeing to do more. Uh, and I think you're going to see more of that. Some of that is going on underneath the WTO umbrella. There's one on investment. They're called Joint Statement Initiatives, JSIs. And it's basically all the members that want to participate. You know, and so not everybody. I think the the one on e-commerce, which is pretty far along, I think it's up to around 80 members right now out of 164 in, in the organization. So maybe almost half. There's one on investment. So maybe we'll see some more. Good idea. Yeah, these 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 things get worked on in a lot of different fora under different names. Uh, APEC for a long time has had what they call the Pathfinder initiatives which are ideas for agreements that aren't yet completely formed or agreed to by everybody. And I also point, there's a long history within the GATT, the famous uh, Tokyo Round Codes, uh, were, were codes that were drafted as a way to conceptualize solving problems in the trading system other than border measures. So things like sanitary and phytosanitary standards or licensing requirements, those kinds of things. And many of the Tokyo Round codes became actual agreements by the time the the WTO was formed in the in the 90s. So these things can can have a beneficial effect. Sorry to interrupt though. You are on a roll. He was on a roll. No, no, I'm glad you did. I <laughs> I think I think you we we got to slow his roll. <laughs> well, Scott, let me let me stop and turn it over to you and then come back to me. Okay, well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right on the the issue of leadership. And let me describe it as I see it. First, that among the institutions that were formed in the post-World War II environment, and there were many, uh, there are many initiatives, most of them led by the U.S., 
because we, we won and we were the only standing industrial economy that still functioned reasonably well for a lot of reasons. And the Cold War broke out quickly. So that a lot of reasons to form these institutions. Of all of them, the trading system has worked the best for the longest. And I think that's because the trading system is very practical in the way it's managed. It is a set of rules that everyone agrees to and that everyone enforces on a mutual basis. And so there's a degree of openness of, to how rules are developed and then the way the rules are administered uh, is not top down at all. It's, it's everyone is, in, is in, in charge of making the system work and it's promoted a lot of benefits over the years, but it does require a, a special kind of leadership. And this is not being the CEO or the director general of an institution. It's much more like being the captain of a sports team. Think, think about the, if you think about the analogy, the captain of the team is a member of the team. He or she's not a coach or uh, doesn't own the team. They're a member, but they exhibit a form of leadership, which is why they're chosen as captain, often by their peers. And that leadership is essential to breaking down the otherwise burdensome and, uh, you know, sort of besetting difficulties that would slow things down. And so if you think about that role, the United States has, has almost always had that role in the trading system as issues move forward. And you look at pivotal moments in negotiations through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and there was always a U.S. official, sometimes the president, sometimes the trade representative, it varied, but uh, who were able to able to make the interventions. I think Clayton Yider was a wonderful example of that during the Uruguay round. And I believe he did it while he was Secretary of Agriculture, who was later U.S. Trade Representative. But these people figured in important ways, and they ex exercised a kind of peer leadership to overcome the obstacles. Now, why did that fall to the U.S.? Well, because the United States was the largest, most productive, most inventive, most resilient economy in the world. Now, here's my question. Why is it? Now, that, first of all, that is still the case for all our problems. The United States is the envy of the world in all sorts of measures, innovation, creativity, resilience, productivity, you name it. Our economy is what people would love to have. Amen. Now, what I want to know is why does the world's strongest economy have government officials of both political parties who think it's too weak to compete? And this is my challenge really for for the next year is, and it, it, it's clearly both parties. Look, we have we have the Republican Party, which is which loves the tariff all of a sudden, and you know the tariffs were a great campaign theme for uh, for for Senator Benjamin Harrison against Grover Cleveland. In fact, that's what that election was about. <laughs> but it was also good for tariff man, though. Yeah, it was it was good for tariff in man 2016, in 2016. Not so good in 2020. Yeah, the tariff gang held together pretty well. And it's the rhetoric still surfaces frequently, but tariffs uh, protect weaker economies. There are lots of reasons that they're harmful to a strong economy like the U.S. In much the same way, the Democratic Party has enough interest group neuralgia that it winds up with basically an inferiority complex about what could be done on behalf of the U.S. So whether it's subsidies and trade and top-down direction, state direction, or it's tariffs, we've got political parties who who won't lead and are worried and somehow worried about it. And it's just totally inconsistent with at least my view of the economy.
That was an equally good roll. So we're going to roll on back to you, Bill. First, Scott deserves great credit. Finally, after all these years, bringing, finding a sports analogy that fits trade. <laughs> oh, we no. we certainly had a number that don't. Uh, well, <laughs> so. you know, and, and I, th I think that, that don't is a strong word because, Scott, I, I have known you to make many great sports analogies, and they worked for me at the very least. Wow, good. Uh, this one worked for Bill, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. As well. that, it, well, that it's, a, it's a higher bar. Yes. It, it's an apt analogy, and it, 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 it suits. I think what's frustrating about it is that at, at its a sign of the times globally, uh, in, for the institution to work, and for we'll probably fail trying to perpetuate the metaphor, but for the team to work, you know, you have the participants all need to be on the same page. Right. And they need to be, uh, you know, willing to, play the game and adhere to the same rules and cooperate. And what we're running into now, partly because governments have chosen to behave this way and partly because the demise of the appellate body and the dispute resolution system allows them to behave this way, now, is if they lose a dispute, you know, and they sort of thumb their nose at the organization and say, well, we're not, we're either, we're not going to comply, you know, we think you're wrong, or the new, the latest tactic, which is now permitted is, we're going to appeal the decision, knowing full well that there's nobody to appeal to because the appellate body has disappeared, but they still have the right of appeal. So this has become known as appealing into the void because you file an appeal and then nothing happens because nothing can happen. And what it means is that if you're a sinner, you get to keep on sitting and, and get away with it. And uh, the United States, sadly, is leading the pack on this. Yeah, we, this is this is the Goldbrickers' way out of... Uh, out of additional drills. Look, where, where the team captain ought to be coming in is pulling the group together and say, what is the we need to fix here? And this is, Bill's point is right. The WTO and the GAP worked the best when the big traders agreed on what problems we're going to try to solve now. They couldn't solve them all. They never tried to solve them all. But there was a general agreement on the things they needed to do most. And, and there, everyone got a kind of their dog in that particular fight, and you had to resolve a lot of issues that you really preferred not to work on, but they were important to your trading partners. So you solved that. Nobody's even taking that initiative now. And for me, that's that's the the downside. And there's and I don't think if the United States doesn't do it, that anyone else is going to even try. So sorry, guys, this is, uh, this is what the uh, folks at Cadillac back in the turn of the last century called the penalty of leadership. You know, when, when you are the leader uh, in any activity, there are expectations that you will do things that only only the leader can do. And so I don't think any of this is going to get off the dime unless the United States engages. There are great expectations placed upon the trade guys, which is why, you know, you guys have to solve some of these problems. <laughs> Sadly, it's not just us, uh, too. I mean, I, I, think I wrote about this a long time ago. What, you know, the Doha round, which was the supposed to be a call it was officially called the Doha development agenda which was inaugurated in the wake of 9-11 and was supposed to address modern things a development agenda for, for uh, developing countries and address some of the problems that the developed countries also saw ended up collapsing and i think really what happened was the countries that had been essentially sustained who created the system which would be europe united states number of others, and it's been basically sustaining it and, and paying for it all these years, we're beginning to run out of gas. I mean, it was 
it was easy. And when I say pay for it, I don't just mean cash because all the members pay dues, but paying for it in the sense of, you know, occasionally taking one for the team. You lose a case and then you comply, even though it's painful to comply, but you comply because you want to keep, you want to make the institution a viable. And, you know, we did that for a long time. And frankly, in the 50s and 60s, that wasn't a very high price. It didn't happen all that often. It didn't affect that much trade. As we moved into this century, it didn't happen all that much more often, but it began to affect more trade and trade itself became more controversial. And I think the developed countries found themselves not only running out of gas in terms of their politically, in terms of their voters' willingness to go along with this, but they also saw rapidly emerging economies, China, India in particular, Brazil, not basically demanding more concessions uh, as developing countries. And the U.S. message back in 2008, that long ago, when this collapse was, you emerging big guys need to step up. And you need to step up and take on some of the responsibility for making all this work yourself, you know, and you need to take one for the team now and then. And those guys said, no, we're not going to do that. We're developing countries. You need to pay more and we need to pay less. And that produced really what has been an unbridgeable gap ever since. And it's still there, particularly with India and, and, and South Africa. So uh, the United States is not helping because we're playing essentially the same game of, you know, when we lose thumb in our nose at the institution and, and not trying to fix it. But all that does is add credibility to the other parties, the Indians, South Africans, others, Venezuela, another one, to basically slow things down and gum up the works. So we're in a difficult situation. I don't know that single country leadership alone can get us out of it, but right now uh, we're floundering and we, need, we ought to do a lot more than we've been doing. Let's put it that way. You're right about the why things fell apart and the, the need for the big traders who happen to be developing countries to share the load in the trading system. But look, we can do more as the United States. You know, if you're if you're a Democrat and, and part of this current administration, look, the United States has has very strong commercial interests in the in the global economy, and we shouldn't be afraid to table a negotiating agenda. And if you table an agenda that is consistent with the American economy's interest, writ large, you will, first of all, help economic growth at home. And second, you'll get the business community and the trading community supportive of what you're doing. And you can you can make a lot of things happen with that back. Second, if you're a pro-tariff Republican, think about what tariffs are doing to inflation and the way they basically raise prices and reduce elasticity of prices because they eliminate products that are sort of lower priced but have higher volume. You send false price signals and consumers overpay and producers get lazy. So why is that such a great policy? What do you think you're going to make of, the, of this great economy by burdening it with tariffs? You know, look, margins matter. Capital flows to the, the highest returns and you're distorting returns. So both, I think, whatever your philosophy is, whether you're worried about tabling an agenda that is in U.S. economic interests or whether you you're want tariffs to somehow protect the producers that are globally competitive, well, let's get over it. Let's get the ball rolling and use the economic strength that we have and just count on American win. It can actually work out well for growth, for, for jobs, and for the U.S. ability to accomplish things in the international space where we have partners who are hungry, hungry for commercial 
engagement. And I don't have another halftime speech. <laughs> Those are all the adjustments I can recommend. Bill, do you want to close with a pep talk here? Or? Well, there are, I mean, there's other things that need to be done. The What Scott just said has been the, I guess, the conventional wisdom about trade for a long time. And what we've got now are people that are challenging the economics, challenging the conventional wisdom and arguing first that that the trade actually doesn't produce the benefits that is uh, that have been claimed for it, and also, and you you'll hear this from the administration and others, is that is a values the values overlay that sure trade might help consumers, but a we need to think about workers and who are also consumers, but that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, and we need to think about values, worker rights, human rights, sustainability, inclusivity. These are all important values that workers care about. It would be interesting to take a poll to find out how many workers actually do care about all of that. The assertion is that they care about it. And so our trade policy needs to reflect our values, even if that makes things more expensive and makes things harder to get. So there's a, some rebellion going on, I think, against the sort of the Milton Friedman school of economics. And I, I kind of see that. I think we're all trying to find our way in, in an environment where those issues can be accommodated. Because, you know, they're not Defending worker rights is not wrong. It's a good idea. Dealing with the climate crisis through trade is a good idea. Having uh, global access to better health care is, is a good idea. Whether the trading system is the right vehicle to accomplish those things is, is a question, which is nobody seems to want to answer. And also whether there's a way to do it, even if you've decided it's the right vehicle. Uh, is there a way to do it within the trading system that will be effective? And those are kind of unanswered questions. We probably need to do more in terms of trade education, but not in what that what that used to mean was essentially telling everybody what Scott just said that you know trade produces lower prices, more consumer choice, and so on, which is all true. But I think we also need to bite some of the other bullets and and say that you know trade also causes uh, causes job loss. I mean, the Peterson Institute just had an interesting paper that came out uh, recently. I think recently in December, where they looked at the overall gains of trade cumulatively from 1950 at $2.6 trillion over a long period of time, but also pointed out that if you looked at the period between 2001 and 2016, trade 300,000 workers either lost their jobs or changed jobs because of imports. The study also points out that during that same period, 50 million Americans uh, changed their jobs. So. There's a, a tendency to, you know, focus on the, you know, on, on the detail without and, and losing sight of the big picture. Trade has produced extraordinary benefits for lots of people, but we can't lose sight of the fact that there's there are bunches of people for whom it has not pursued, produced benefits, but it's actually harm. And we haven't done a very good job of helping those people over the years. One of the mysteries is uh, right now is why the administration is not spending more time trying to push renewal of trade adjustment assistance and some things that have fallen by the wayside, which would be helpful in that regard. But I think we need to be honest with, with workers about you know, both the upsides and uh, and the downsides of trade, but also uh, develop policies that are more enabling for workers to find other opportunities and, and, and better opportunities. Look, I agree with that completely. And, and the U.S. is a very dynamic job market. When you look at the changes in employment month to month 
what they show is the net change. They don't show the gross change because the net change will be maybe 300,000 jobs, but there are over 2 million jobs lost and gained every single month in the United States in all matters of food. Everything from the local dry cleaner closes up shop to Intel opens up a facility, a fab in Columbus, Ohio. You know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for those changes every month. It's part of being in a dynamic economy. Not everything stays the same. Now, we could do a better job of making sure people are ready to find the next job when their current job goes away for whatever reason. And it doesn't just have to be trade. There are lots, nobody likes losing a job, and, and, but, it, but yet it happens with great frequency because the way you create new jobs is destroy old ones. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the element of, of economic growth that is part of a, an economy like the United States. So we can definitely do a better job. We can definitely make progress on some of these collective action issues that Bill described if we can find partners. And what we've done so far is we've tried to impose our values without anything to attract the partner to a discussion. We go in and preach a sermon on human rights, and we won't open up access to our market. <laughs> so our friends and potential partners in places like Southeast Asia and the Pacific they're like, well, this is kind of half loaf. The famous Larry Summers quote: "The U.S. gives us lectures; the the Chinese build airports." <laughs> so, you know, look, we 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 can do more, but we've got to find partners if we're going to make progress on these other issues. And so, my my sense is we just need to be more practical and and holistic about the way we look at these things, as they won't advance on their own, and as they are now, they're an excuse for not doing anything on the commercial side where we have major potential. One of the interesting things that came out in this WIDA conversation was, and I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but it, and it's, what it's worth thinking about is that uh, countries that, that develop, that get richer and grow, tend to pay their workers more. They tend to have more respect uh, for human rights. They tend to be uh, you know, better partners in all respects, and their companies tend to be more profitable. And in fact, there's data here in the United States that shows that companies that operate internationally do better on all those scales, uh, all those scales as well. It kind of raises the question, though, if, if your goal as the administration is to promote worker rights, promote human rights abroad, one way to do that is to help those countries become richer. Absolutely. Uh, what we're doing with our trade policy is kind of the opposite. And so... I think we need to think that we're waiting. We're waiting for perfection, which has never happens. Yeah. Well, yes, we're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, which is one of my chronic things that I rant about. We used to in Congress used to understand that the perfect was the enemy of the good, and that's what compromise was all about. I think we've uh, we've lost that now on both ends of the spectrum. You know, it's the searches for the perfect thing, and if I can't have the perfect thing, then I'm happy with nothing, which is guaranteed disaster. The final uh, one word, we'll say more about this next in 2024 because it's going to be an issue. It's an issue right now is we also need to be honest with the American people about demography, which really means uh, immigration. You know, our birth rates are declining. Uh, our population hasn't been declining, but it's going to if we don't do anything. We don't have enough workers. We're not going to have enough workers going forward. The solution is immigration, and we need to get real about that. And it's not just PhD engineers. We don't have enough uh, nursing aides. We don't have enough healthcare workers. We don't have enough plumbers. We don't have enough, enough electricians. We don't even have enough construction workers. And uh, 
You know, if you want to fill those jobs, uh, and we need those jobs, we need that work to be done, uh, we're going to have to let in more people. And the American people, true to form, and have been this way for 200 years, once in, they don't want to let anybody else in. Uh, immigration is not popular, even though their parents, their grandparents, or their great-grandparents came in because of immigration. And we have a major education effort here to get people to understand that sort of what was good enough for their grandfather or grandmother should be good enough now. Well, look, we talked last week about the importance of Congress, and you know the American people deserve a say in who comes in, and that's that's what the the Congress is for. They are our representatives to determine policy, which they haven't done in this particular space for coming up on four decades. Nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, so uh, so it's been a while. It's time to get going, but at the same time, for all our problems, we're very fortunate. There's a lot more people who want to come here than want to leave for some other country. I'll take that migration problem any day. Still a pretty good place to be. You bet it is. Great discussion. Great way to end 2023. And uh, we'll be back in 2024 to talk about more trade. Yes, we're going to take a couple of weeks off. We'll be back in 24. And we'll be starting out with our fearless forecast for 2024. For sure. For sure. Well, th- everybody, th- thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. And hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. We'll see you next year. Happy holidays, all. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.